0: Amen. You may be seated. Uh, this gives me a great pleasure to welcome Peter and Miriam. Peter Hart- Hartgerink is uh, going to be sharing the message this morning. Uh, most of you know him, but I thought I should introduce him because some of you don't. He used to be a member here, and uh, we just love him. And so come on up, Peter, and share what God has laid on your heart. Thank you. And you don't have to wear a mask while preaching. God bless you. Life is complicated sometimes, isn't it? More complicated right now in many ways than we've been used to prior to COVID. Uh, But God gives us grace for all these different little things and big things. Okay, so first of all, I just want to say in all sincerity, it's great to be back. Um, We know that we're where God has placed us church-wise and community-wise, but we're very happy to be here and really miss this place and and the people of Eastgate. And I also want to thank the worship team. I always really appreciate a worship team that is led by the Spirit, and i you couldn't have picked a better song uh, as, a, as a song just prior to my message, so thank you for that. Whoever did that, I guess that was God. <laughs> thank you, Lord. Um, so the title of my message this morning is The Way of the Cross, and really I'm going to be preaching on tribulation and persecution last fall the pastor at harmony community church where which is our current church home did a series on the kingdom of god and he said there's one final topic that we need to address but i want he said to me i want you to do it and the topic is tribulation so i said thanks (laughs) everybody's favorite topic right but i do think it's really important so uh, we're going to be looking at what tribulation is really and why we go through it. But I want to start with the scripture, and then before we get into the really the meat of what tribulation is, we're going to do a, just a quick overview of the history of persecution because, in the scriptural context, tribulation is usually a kind of a code word for persecution. It means more than that, but it's usually used in reference to persecution. So we're going to look at the history of persecution. Really compacted, because it's a big history, and then get into the Word itself. I just want to read this, first of all, so you can actually follow the Scripture on your slides. So this is a a little segment of one of the um, episodes in the Book of Acts, when Paul and Barnabas were on their preaching tour, and they encountered some opposition. So it says they stoned Paul. This this would refer to Jews from another city where he had already preached and they didn't like the message and they chased him to the next town. It says, They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up. Now that's significant. We'll come back to that later. He rose up and entered the city and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And that is really my text, through many tribulations. We must enter the kingdom of God. So, who likes that message? <laughs> but it's in the Bible. I have a friend, well, friend that I follow on Twitter. I've actually, I've, he's from Kansas City, but I've actually met him. But he writes extensively and teaches on topics related to persecution and the end times and a wide range of topics. Anyway, he put this just this verse on Twitter recently, without reference. And a number of his followers said it's heresy. (laughs) He said, no, it isn't It's scripture. (laughs) So it's not a popular theme. Not everybody wants to hear about tribulation. Um, But before we get into why this verse is in the Bible and what God wants to say to us through it, we're just going to take a quick look at the history of persecution of believers. So we have to remember that the scriptures were written in a time when there was a lot of persecution of Christians. And it increased for the next Few hundred years. That's not our experience. So it's a little bit strange for us. We don't live in a culture where Christians have been persecuted. Some would say we're being persecuted now. I guess you could debate what constitutes persecution, but we certainly haven't been persecuted as Christians in Canada for the most part up till now. So prior to 313 AD, Christians were frequently persecuted in the Roman Empire. There were various waves of persecution, it was more intense at some times than at others. Uh, there was a cult of emperor worship that uh, became it became required that you would willingly say Caesar is Lord, and Christians wouldn't say that. Some Christians caved in, um, but the gospel continued to spread. So then, the emperor Constantine, 313 A.D., issued the Edict of Milan, and Christianity was officially tolerated, and Christianity and persecution mostly stopped at that point. Constantine was eventually baptized on his deathbed. The belief at that time, at least his belief, was you had to wait till the end to be baptized because what happened if you committed a sin after you were baptized? So a little bit of a confused understanding, but we won't go there. Um, So by 380 AD, which is uh, just a little later in that century, Christianity had become the state religion of Rome. And so for the next couple of hundred years, that was the state of things. Being a Christian became an advantage. The Roman Empire became heavily Christianized. Christianity also became partly corrupted. And there were various reform movements. There were monastic movements. The the monastic movements mostly arose because of corruption in the church. They wanted to separate themselves from the world. And there was also a lot of persecution of Jews by Christians, which is one of the dark notes of our Christian history Um, 622 AD this is a really high level overview here 622 AD uh, to 750 AD roughly you get the rise of Islam and during that time frame uh, Islamic armies conquered the Middle East and North Africa there was very intense persecution because those regions were almost completely Christian and Christians were killed or forced to convert Jews were also persecuted by, by Islam at that time if they didn't become Muslims. Um, then you get a, a, a long time period, 750 A.D. to about 1500 A.D., when Europe was mostly Christian, Arabia and North Africa was mostly Islamic. There were various missionary movements from time to time. Ireland would be an example of an area that was, uh, became Christian through missionary endeavor. St. Patrick, it was actually earlier than this, but there were missions at different times to different parts, because even though Europe was technically Christian, it wasn't really necessarily Christian everywhere, and they also were, there were missions to various other places as well. Christianity was sometimes imposed by force, so if a king became a Christian, he declared that the whole country was Christian, which is a bit problematic, but anyway, we won't go there either. Christian persecution of Jews continued, and Christian Europe and Islam were sometimes at war, so we had the Crusades. And then the fall of Constantinople in 1453 A.D. So Constantinople was the capital of the what had been the eastern half of the Roman Empire and became the Byzantine Empire. So it was kind of the it became the center, the institutional center of Christianity for several hundred years. So when Constantinople fell, that was a big deal. Um, but it kind of competed with Rome for that uh, center of Christianity thing. But anyway, when Constantinople fell, it was a big deal. Um, We'll go on to the next slide. Then 1500 to about 1950, and this is, again, very compressed. A lot of things were happening, but you get the rise of Protestantism, you get revival movements, uh, the Wesleys, you get Pentecostalism arose in the early part of the 20th century. Um, A big increase in missionary activity. At this point, the gospel was taken to various parts of the world, including North America, South America, Africa, Asia. Missionaries were sometimes persecuted Christianity was still sometimes imposed by force, so we have our own dark history in Canada of uh, residential schools, which was an attempt to impose both kind of white Western culture and a version of Christianity. A lot of people would say it wasn't really Christianity that was being taught, but we won't go there either. (laughs) So the growth of evangelicalism and Pentecostalism during this time. And then the last sort of 50, the last half of the... 20th century, there was persecution in places like China and the USSR, persecution of of Christians in and also in the Islamic world still. But in North America, Christians mostly experienced peace, prosperity and favor. So evangelical Christianity was mostly favored or at least tolerated. So North, this is really my point with this history, part of my point. North American white evangelicals aren't used to persecution, and we don't like it, and we think it's wrong that it should happen. For the most part, we get offended by it. Like, the, the dominant response of North American white evangelicals to persecution is, this should not be happening, change the government, let's fix it. Bit of a caricature, but I don't think it's far off. Um, And then, in the last sort of 20 years, we're really into post-Christian culture in most Western nations. We have a Christian history, we have a Christian heritage that shaped our culture, but we're a post-Christian nation, and that's true of most of the Western world now. Uh, We have communism in China and North Korea, we have radical Hinduism in India. We don't hear about this a lot in the mainstream press, but there's a lot of persecution of Christians in India from radical Hindus. We have radical Islam in many nations where there's also a lot of persecution. But with all of that persecution, the gospel is still spreading rapidly in Africa and many parts of Asia. So Iran, for example, would be a nation that, where there's intense persecution, but the gospel is spreading very rapidly. Underground church. And it's not the only nation where that's true. Um, so opposition to the gospel is increasing, but the gospel is also spreading. So with all of that, how should Christians respond to trouble to persecution and that's where we go back to our scripture text this is how paul and barnabas i just wanted to provide a link between our experience of being in a mostly church-friendly culture up till recently versus paul and barnabas experience which was being a very small minority that was persecuted so paul and barnabas responded to tribulation like this it says they strengthened the souls of the disciples They encouraged them to continue in the faith and said that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So I want to give just one example of somebody who was persecuted and then get into the text itself. So there was a young slave girl. This is a fairly well-known piece of history if you accept the account that was published by the Church of Lyon. They sent an account to other churches of of her persecution. So a young slave girl who was 12 years old in Lyon in France. So at this time, Christianity had spread to quite an extent in the Roman Empire. There were Christians in many places, but they were very much still a minority and still persecuted. And the persecution, under some emperors, it was mandated by Rome. Under other emperors, it was just allowed to happen so the local magistrates could do whatever they wanted, basically. So, and it was common for persecution to happen during public festivals, public games, carnivals. So in this particular case, so as part of the carnival or the festival, the Christians would get offered basically to the lions. That was sort of the, That's the caricature, but it actually happened. Uh, so in this particular case, part of what uh, happened was they were persecuted, tortured in order to exact a confession of sin, and the sin would be that they committed cannibalism or some other kind of wrong. And and some people did cave in because of the fear of torture. This young girl was placed in stocks and tortured in a wide variety of ways. They couldn't exact any confession out of her except the line at the bottom in yellow which says, I am a Christian and we do no evil. That was all she ever said in response to every torture. Whenever they asked her to confess something, she said, I am a Christian and we do no evil. They placed red-hot irons pressed them against her flesh. They did a lot more than that, but that alone is enough to make you shudder, right? They raised her, at the end, near the end of the process, they raised her on a stake and offered her to the wild beasts, and the wild beast wouldn't touch her. Her intense prayers inspired the Christians that were watching, because there was a crowd watching, and some of them were Christians. And the animals didn't touch her. In the end, they had to execute her, like an executioner executed her, because the animals wouldn't touch her. And all she would say was, I am a Christian, and we do no evil. So, I would call that tribulation, wouldn't you? (laughs) I think that qualifies as tribulation. Um, Well, Paul, and not all tribulations are that extreme, but that's really to highlight for us that persecution is real, and persecution is still ongoing. It has never really stopped, but persecution of Christians has increased through the 20th century and is still increasing i would say that like there's persecution in many cultures for many reasons but i would say that uh, i think it's an objective assessment that there are more christians persecuted for their faith in the world than any other religious group um, so paul says through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of god so what are tribulations we're going to start with that what are tribulations So the word tribulation actually comes from a Latin word, tribulare, which means to oppress or to squeeze. And that word comes from the word tribulum, which refers to a threshing sledge. Now a threshing threshing sledge is a board with inset pieces of metal or stone that was used in the ancient world and still used in some places to thresh grain. So the process of threshing grain is you separate the wheat from the chaff. And it's not a gentle process. So this board was dragged over the ripe grain to separate the grain from the chaff. Now imagine that board is somebody's back and the threshing sledge is being dragged over their back. Take a look at a threshing sledge. That's the next next slide. So imagine that, and those are pieces of metal, imagine that being dragged over your back. So that's a picture of... There's actually a psalm that talks about that. It talks about your back being plowed. And it says... It's referring to oppression. And it's an image. I don't think that literally happened. But it did happen to Jesus with the cat of nine tails and the three nine lashes. His back was laid open. So the Greek word that's used for tribulation is a word that refers to compression. So it's like a narrow place that hems you in. It leaves you with no options. And it can also refer to the internal pressure. So it might be a literal, physical place. I mean, that could happen, that you're actually hemmed in, you have no physical escape. But it can also refer to the pressure that you feel when you're facing oppression. Like you're, you're, you're in fear, right? What am I going to do? How am I going to respond? How am I going to be able to stay faithful? Can I get out of it? Can I be faithful in it? There are lots of questions. What's going to happen to my family, right? All the internal pressures that a person feels, that's all part of the tribulation. So, you may never have experienced direct persecution for your faith. Few white North American believers have encountered direct, intense persecution. But most of us have experienced some form of trial or tribulation. In fact, I would say everybody has. So, again, the Greek word for tribulation refers to being hemmed in or being under pressure. It could be direct persecution, but it... This is the conclusion I came to when I was thinking about this. It could also be other forms of hardship or opposition that flow from our choice to obey God or that challenge us to respond in a godly way. So whatever trial you experience because you're being obedient to God, that is real to you. And I don't think we should ever minimize somebody else's trial and say, well, it's not as big as this one, so it doesn't count. If if you're being obedient to God and you experience trial because of it, That's a tribulation. It may not be as intense as somebody else's, but it still counts. And it's important for us to know how to go through it because my expectation is that tribulations will increase in the years to come. For sure, trouble of various kinds is increasing in our culture right now. Would you agree with that? I think think all of us would. And, and you could consider COVID as a kind of tribulation. It's not persecution of Christians per se, but it certainly brought lots of trouble to lots of people, including Christians. And it challenges us. How are we going to respond to God in obedience during these times? So here are some examples from my life. I wouldn't call these extreme persecution, but they were tribulations. That I, I, I thought about this when I was preparing this message what would be episodes in my life that would, I would consider to be tribulation? This is just a few. I remember being ejected from a church that I was serving as a pastor <clears throat> because of a stand that I took on an issue of scriptural obedience. Um, the a backstory to this, but I won't give the whole backstory. but at the end of the message, the lead elder came to me and said, you're never preaching here again. And he didn't actually have the legal right to enforce that, but I didn't want to press the issue. Um, so, Marion and I were uprooted and forced to make a complete fresh start. We had about a week and a half to make the decision. Um, again, we could have pressed our rights, but we didn't choose to do that. Um, I remember the years following that upheaval, living below the poverty line with a wife and young children, planning a church with no financial support from outside, I had to fight my fears and choose to trust God for his provision. I remember several occasions when I had to fight a battle to forgive someone who had undermined my leadership in a church I had planted or was leading. Is that tribulation? You decide. I experienced it as tribulation. You could say low-grade tribulation, but it counts. I remember times when my efforts to witness to a colleague or a family member or a neighbor provoked a strong, hostile reaction. I remember a time, now this is a different kind of experience, but for me it was difficult, and I had to look at a lot of issues because of it. I remember a time when I was led into a really bad investment by a former pastor, somebody that I should have been able to trust, and lost a lot of retirement income. And I had been counting on that retirement income to be able to stop doing consulting and give myself to full-time ministry, so that was a dream I had. And because of, partly because of those decisions that I was led into, kind of oversold Um, on something and i was i made the decision but i'm just saying it was a tribulation for me the whole experience was a test and my challenge was how to respond with grace and humility and trust in god so none of those experiences qualifies persecution i wouldn't call any of those persecution but each one was a form of hardship they were certainly tests And here's the core issue, I think. The issue for me was always simple. Was I going to obey God or not? I'm very grateful that early on after my conversion, Marion and I were led into a ministry that trained us in discipleship. It was prayer ministry we were taught, but it it was framed as the core purpose in seeing people's hearts healed so that they're free to obey God. So we have to position ourselves to obey. That's really the issue for us. Always, and when you are undergoing hardship, you have to make that choice in that situation. So I would say that a tribulation is really any situation of hardship or pressure, next slide that makes obedience difficult or costly. A tribulation is really any situation of hardship or pressure that makes obedience difficult or costly. So you might be experiencing low-grade tribulation at your school, if you're a student or at your workplace. Um, And for you, it's not low-grade. For you, it's your experience, and you need to know how to respond to it. Obedience to Jesus is always the test of discipleship. And like I said a minute ago, we have to position ourselves to obey, and we must... The Bible says we must go through many tribulations. Is that because God is mean? No, I don't think so. I think it's, well, I'll, we'll get into some of the reasons in a minute, but there's a purpose for us in tribulation. Learning to obey God in smaller tests prepares us to pass the bigger ones. So, again, Paul and Barnabas, their response to The tribulation they underwent was not to quit. Their response was to counsel their new converts. Well, this is going to be part of your experience. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So the first question I want to look at is, why must we go through tribulations? Why does he say we must? Some translations soften that a bit, but I I think this is an important point. Why does he say we must go through tribulations? Well, I think really it's about spiritual warfare. We live in an age of conflict between two kingdoms. When you're in a sort of Christianized culture, which we have been in North America, it's easy to think that you know, the state of things where Christianity is favored, that that's normal, that's the way it should be, and when it's not that way, we get offended. But actually, that's not normal according to the New Testament. We live in an age of conflict between two kingdoms, we're in a real war with a real enemy, we would prefer that the war be already over. I mean, let's be honest, wouldn't we? We would all prefer that the war be over, but it's not. We prefer to be at peace now, but the biblical hope is in a coming kingdom. So, spiritual warfare is inevitable. It's not something you can avoid. We're in it whether we realize it or not. And if you are trying to avoid it, uh, I would say you're probably, you've already lost the battle, or at least you're not, you're in a dangerous position if you're trying to avoid spiritual warfare. Because you can't. To be obedient to God, you can't avoid spiritual warfare. To enter the kingdom, we have to win this battle. There's no other option. There's no uh, neutral ground in this battle. There is respite sometimes. God does give us periods of respite, and I'm very thankful for that, but there's no neutral ground in the battle. Okay, so there are three key battlegrounds. Um, You've probably heard this, the flesh, the world, and the devil. Uh, So crucify the flesh. This would refer to the darkness within. We have to deal with the darkness within ourselves, our old nature. There's also the world system. It's important for us to recognize the wickedness of the world system And and without becoming offended with the people in the world. That's, That's part of it, right? That's part of the tension we live in. We're called to love people who mostly believe lies and speak those lies to us without believing the lies. Because in the world, what is really darkness from God's point of view is presented as light, right? The darkness around us masquerades as light. So it's it's very tricky to discern that sometimes. And the way to discern it ultimately is to listen to God's voice and not the devil's lies which is a daily choice. So we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and we're not mostly talking about political rulers here. I mean, yes, it is political rulers because spiritual powers operate through them, but it's it's really the devil who's, who's the the enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the full armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. That's the scriptural counsel. That's Ephesians 6. And then In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this about, again, about the powers that rule the world we're in. He's talking about, actually, about the resurrection here. But he says, referring to the resurrection, then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So what that tells you is the enemies have not all been defeated yet. I mean, they have been, but they haven't been, right? We know what the end will be, but we're not there yet. So, one of the keys to understanding tribulation is to understand that we're in a spiritual battle. We're going to move on from that point to God's positive purpose for us in tribulation. So one of the positive purposes for us in tribulation is tribulations train us in obedience. And Jesus is our model, right? And it says in Philippians 2 that he, Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So he could have claimed his rights in a sense and said, well, I'm God, I don't have to do this. But he didn't. It says he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. I don't know if you've thought about the fact. That Jesus had to humble himself. To accept persecution. It was a daily choice that he had to make. And. It's really explicit in Hebrews 5, verse 8. I don't know about you, but when I first grasped what this verse was saying, it kind of shocked me, but it's, it's powerful. Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That doesn't mean he was ever disobedient, but at the same time, he had to learn to obey in specific circumstances through suffering. Well, if Jesus had to do that, then why should we think that we would get off without having to do it? It says in Hebrews two seventeen, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So basically, he became like us, we're to become like him, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So this is another purpose of tribulation. It's training us in obedience, it's also teaching us to be merciful. So we're not supposed to become offended when we encounter tribulation. I mean, to be honest, we sometimes do, but we have to fight that, right? And humble ourselves because tribulations have a purpose of teaching us to be merciful. So Jesus became, it says, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God by entering into suffering. And then another purpose of tribulation is to train us to listen to God. See, if you're not having any kind of trouble, you might not bother thinking you need to... Why would you need to listen to God? Everything's fine. I'm good. It's okay. God's there. He's, I know He's there, but I, I'm good. I can manage. Everything's fine. But when you're in trouble, you know you need to listen. So when Marianne and I um, were ejected from the church we were serving, but this is like 32 years ago now, but anyway, when this happened... Um, We prayed. We had learned during the few years prior to that that God could speak to us, could direct us through prayer. He speaks through his written word. I know he does. But I'm talking about the specific direction that you need when you're trying to make a decision. And you're not going to find the specific answer to your situation directly in the word. You'll find principles, but sometimes you need to know what you're supposed to do, right? Like when David consulted the Lord, all he had was the Urim and the Thummim. They could tell him yes or they could tell him no. But we have the Holy Spirit who will actually speak to us. So we learned the power of this verse. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. So what that's about, partly, is that when the Holy Spirit speaks to you through the, through the written word or directly, he kind of lays you open and says, not that way, this way. And part of what he's doing is showing you the way of the Spirit is the way of obedience. So the way of your soul may not be the way of obedience because your soul has to come into alignment with what God's Spirit is saying. Right? My heart has to come into a place where I'm willing to say, yes, God, I'll do what you say. But to know what that is, I have to listen to him. I have to go to him and say, Lord, I can't, I don't know what to do. I need you to speak to me. So we prayed and the Lord answered and he directed us. So, so that's a little look at why we must go through tribulations. But now we're going to look at another word here, which is the word through. So Paul and Barnabas said to their new disciples, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So how and why do we go through Tribulations. Well, I think one of the keys here is to recognize that we have an eternal perspective. So tribulations are not our destiny. They're something we go through. Testing prepares us for coming glory. So Jesus is preparing a bride for himself, and trials are part of the process. But he's preparing a glorious bride. So it's a different you, you get a different perspective on tribulation when you realize you're going through it for something better. What did the apostles do after Paul was stoned? It says they surrounded him. You could think of this as his team, right? His team surrounded him. And they probably laid hands on him and prayed it for him. It doesn't specifically say that, but they surrounded him and then he got up again. He'd just been stoned. You don't usually just get up after being stoned. So I believe there was some powerful activity of the Holy Spirit here, but there was a team. And he got up again. So this is partly about developing resiliency. The next day, he and Barnabas moved on and kept making disciples. So part of what tribulations are for is to teach us resiliency, teach us to get up again. And they were not offended with God. They might have Had to fight that but that wasn't where they stayed they were not offended with god they learned to win the battle on the inside the inner battle they went through the test and kept on serving they didn't say god you shouldn't let this happen to us they got up and kept serving next slide so this is i mean it's a football picture right you can all tell that and the quarterback has just been sacked and what does the rest of his team do they help him get up so that he can play again Power of a team. And then tribulations are partly about setting our will to obey. We talked about obedience before. So why do we go through them? We go through them to learn obedience. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily, Jesus said, and follow me. So it isn't just a a once-in-a-lifetime experience. It isn't, you know, that you surrender to Jesus once and then you're done surrendering. If you believe that, then you're not going to Stay with him very long. Jesus said, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. See, one of the reasons that many marriages fail is because people don't want to repent. It's not that complicated. Marriages fail because people don't realize that marriage is a contract for your sanctification. Right? Marriage is good in itself, but it's also ordained by God like everything else that's good from God, for our sanctification, which means you have to learn how to repent. If anybody's been married for a long time and is still married, you'd probably recognize what I'm saying. And then, another aspect of going through tribulations, maybe the most important aspect, is that we have a hope and we can rejoice in that hope. So Paul says in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame or does not disappoint us, some translations say, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, has been given to us. So in the midst of the tribulation, you experience the love of God for you through the Holy Spirit. And because he loves you, you're able to love the people that are persecuting you. So you learn to rejoice in the midst of the test. Peter says in First Peter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So he was basically saying, don't be shocked. It's going to happen, but learn to rejoice because God has treasure waiting for you. And then I mean if you're still in doubt let's listen to the voice of Jesus himself. Jesus said just before his crucifixion I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation he didn't say you may have he said you will you will have but take heart I have overcome the world. And he taught what well, Paul taught his disciples, but Jesus also taught them this, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That can be a challenge when you're experiencing persecution, but it's, it's the way that we're called to walk. It's the way of the cross. It's what Jesus did, right? He didn't fight back. He accepted it, but he said his will to obey God. And then the last thought I want to touch on, I know my time is pretty well up, so I'll keep this short. We talked about why we have tribulations. We talked about why we must go through them. We talked about the going through part that we're getting somewhere. But then he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So this is actually really important. What have tribulations got to do with entering the kingdom? Aren't we already in the kingdom? Well, yes and no. If you're a believer, you've been given entrance to the kingdom. But if you look around you, would you say the kingdom of God has fully come? I think not. Next slide. So Marianne and I got married 45 years ago. And um, we look a bit different now. <laughs> but the question is, were we fully married then when we got married? Well, Yes. But are we more married now than we were then? Well, yes. I believe we have a much, not a complete understanding, but a much better understanding of what it means to be married now than we did when we got married 45 years ago. We look a bit different, but we've learned some things. And I appreciate my wife much more now than I did 45 years ago. Not that I didn't appreciate her then, but I appreciate her much more now than I did then. So, Paul uses marriage as an analogy for really for the sanctification process. He says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. So that means we need to listen to God speaking to us every day because he's changing us. Right? That's what he died for. It wasn't just, okay, your sins are forgiven, now you're clean, that's it, that's all. No, it's an ongoing process. It is true that He's paid for our sins, but there's an ongoing process of being transformed. And then he says that his purpose is to be able to present his bride to himself. Think about this. As a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's what we're on the way to. That's God's purpose. That's what Jesus wants for his bride. So just a quick look at kind of the history of our salvation. All these are scriptural truths. The Bible says that you were saved before the foundation of the world. The Bible also says in the same book, almost in the same chapter, that you were saved when Jesus died for you on the cross. The Bible also says that you were saved when you believed. And the Bible also says that you will be saved when Jesus returns to reign openly on earth as king. And at that time, he will give us entrance into his kingdom. So it's actually possible to have believed in Jesus and not... I don't know how else you can read the New Testament. If you're a Calvinist, you won't like this. But it's possible to have professed belief in Jesus at one time and not get entrance into his heavenly kingdom. It is possible. Because you can completely fall away and renounce him. Jesus warns us about that, actually. So tribulations are about preparation for the heavenly kingdom. A couple more things, and then I'll wind up. Tribulations give us an opportunity to grow in love for the one who has saved us. I don't know about you, but I would say that I love Jesus more now than when I was a young man, a young believer. And I don't believe I love him as much as he's worthy of being loved, but I love him more than I I did then. They also give us an opportunity to to become more like him in this age and to prove that our love is genuine. Because if you're not being tested, it's easy to love Jesus, right, when things are easy. It's harder to love Jesus when things are hard, but that's when our love is demonstrated as being genuine. So Paul says in Romans 13 that we need to understand the present time. He says the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. Now, he was writing to first century Christians, but you know, there's a testimony of a woman, an Iranian woman, who, believers, came to Christ in Iran, came to North America because they wanted to escape persecution. And after a period of time, she said to her husband, Satan is singing a lullaby to the church in North America and lulling them all to sleep. We need to go back to Iran. And they did. I think it's really easy to fall asleep in a comfortable culture. And I believe that one of the reasons God allows tribulations like COVID is to wake us up. If you don't wake up when things are easy, let's see what happens when things get harder. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And then the final scripture I want to look at is from 1 John. Remember, John was the beloved apostle, the one that Jesus was closest to on a human level. And this is what he had to say about these matters. And now, little children, he said, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God and so we are, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. See, you can't be offended with people who don't know. They just don't know. They might do all kinds of wrong, but they don't know. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be, listen to this, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as Christ is pure. So that's why we have to go through tribulation. It's also why we go through it in hope. We don't stay stuck in it because we see beyond it and we know by faith and by the Word of God in Scripture, what the outcome is. We know that we have an eternal hope. And so we can welcome the work of God. Nobody in their right mind welcomes persecution for its own sake. But you welcome the work of God in you through the persecution because you're committed to growing in love and becoming more like Jesus and giving glory to Him. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us hope in the midst of hard times. And we do recognize that we have not found these times easy, but we also recognize that they may get harder, but you are good. And we choose to fix our eyes on you, on your goodness, on your mercy, on your kindness to us. And thank you, Lord, that we have a hope that does not fail. In Jesus' name, amen.